few a few quick announcements before I forget. Uh, next week they're having a big event in here on Monday, so we'll be down in the fellowship hall uh, for the and it'll be the last lesson in the series. It'll be the tenth week, uh, and you can see on your. Uh, tables today, next week is the 10th lesson, and so it'll be our last one. Is, is everybody going to be able to make it? Everybody? Okay. If uh, no hands went up, I would just say, oh, well, never mind. <laughs> okay, so we'll see you down there. We'll have signs up and everything, uh, I assume. And the second thing I was going to tell you uh, I, don't, I didn't know if everybody knew, I think you probably do, that I'm taking a group to Israel uh, this summer on June the 7th, and we've still got one, a couple of spaces left if anybody wants to go, but it's uh, kind of in a hurry because we're closing it uh, pretty soon. Probably the uh, uh, next week we'll be closing it. So if you have any interest in it, speed up your interest because uh, we need to hear from you. Otherwise... Uh, we got a good group that's going, okay? Uh, we're studying the parables of Christ, and today we're in Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, sometimes called the Pharisee and the publican. Uh, and the Pharisee's problem in this, like, like a lot of people's, his big problem is pride and vanity, you know. And uh, I was thinking that, uh, this pride always ends in a fall, just like this this episode of Kramer. All right. So pride and humility is a very interesting subject that's explored in this parable. And uh, when you think about it, uh, pride is that thing that we notice in everybody else, but never see in ourselves. And yet everybody's got a certain amount of pride to varying degrees. Some people got a whole way too much and others uh, less, but everybody's got pride that can get them in trouble. Uh, humility, on the other hand, is, is really an interesting subject because humility is something we all need. We certainly all need it. Uh, we, we want it. We admire it in others. But if you say you have a humility, what happens? You're actually proud in saying that, so you're not humble, right? Uh, you know, like me, I'm writing a book. Uh, humility and how I achieved it. See, that's kind of defeats the purpose, you see. So uh, th this is a great subject, you know. Uh, humility is such a difficult thing to have, but it's all important, especially for Christians, because only in humility can we hope to approach God and uh, confess our sins and repent and have Christ become our Savior. It takes a certain amount of humility to do that. And so proud people will never come. And that's what you see in the parable as well, this great contrast. Uh, I saw one theologian was talking about pride and vanity. And he said, pride, the idolatrous worship of self. And it is the, natu the national religion of hell. Pride is very competitive by nature. That, that, you know, pride causes that competition, you know. And, and it's funny, we all admire the competitive person, you know, the uh, person who's really into, you know, competing and must win and all that. That's the guy we want working for us, right? 
but it's often driven by that, that concept of pride, you know. I've got to raise myself up and push others down. I've got to be the best, etc. And just like it did Kramer in that movie, uh, it, it messes you up. It can cause you to compromise, to seek an edge. You know, you, you all are aware of the people you have to deal with. If you play golf, you know people that have fake handicaps, right? You see in all the pro sports, they're all taking performance-enhancing drugs to get an edge. Uh, and there's cheating of every kind, you know, in, in every sport and, of course, in business. And it's all about this, this intense competition that the human race has out there because they're so proud. Uh, and so today, you know, when, as you watch these games on TV, the, the, some of the words that jump out at me, they, they use all the time now, which is dominate, dominate. You know, they like think that's this great thing to dominate. And also, uh, one of the things they all say, say now is they're imposing their will. You know, God, it just sounds awful to me. He's going to impose his will. I mean, it's just good night. And then, of course, they have the crowds, and they're always showing the crowds. And what are, what are all the kids in the crowds doing? We're number one. We're number one. Really? I mean, that's the thing that's on everybody's mind. On the other hand, the book of Proverbs, you know, written by Solomon, all the wisdom, he says that on God's top ten things that God hates, Pride is number one. It's the number one thing that God hates. And yet, it's such a big deal to the human race. And you go, wait a minute. I, I originally, if somebody had asked me that question, I thought it was murder. But that actually comes after pride. I mean, when you think of the story of Cain and Abel, what caused Cain to kill Abel? His pride. You know, because God accepted Abel's gift and turned Cain's down. So pride is number one thing that, that God hates. And, and why? Because the self-sufficiency of it. God made us to have a loving relationship with him and to serve him and glorify him. And yet, when you have that great pride, what does it lead to? Self-sufficiency. It's all about me. Why, why would you need God when it's all about me? Uh, so it's self-sufficiency rather than God-sufficiency. It's my way instead of God's way. It's all about me instead of being all about God. Uh, on the other hand, Jesus said in his teachings in the New Testament, Jesus said, if you want to be great, remember his disciples were all arguing about who's the greatest. Wouldn't you love to hear some of those discussions? I am the greatest, you know. He had uh, 12 Muhammad Ali's in there, you know, all jockeying for position. And Jesus told them, if you want to be great, you have to be a servant. Because in God's economy, in his view, the people who serve are the people that are great. And, of course, Jesus said later, he said, when you are great, what happens? You are helping and serving and loving others. That's why God created you. That's what leads you to greatness. On the other hand, what does the world say? When you're great, the world serves you. We want to be great, have the money, have the power, prestige, the position, so people will serve us. That's what life's all about, to get all that stuff 
so that we can have all the servants and we don't have to serve others. So uh, uh, it's just the opposite. The world's way is just the opposite of Jesus' way. And Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, and this is the other reason God hates it, because it's self-destructive. Proverbs says, pride goes before destruction, meaning pride causes destruction. So obviously God loves you and wants the best for you, and he knows that intense pride that we have is going to end up going to lead to self-destruction. A haughty spirit precedes the fall. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. All these scriptures are clear about that. Ask yourself the question, why do Hollywood stars and pro athletes have much higher percentages of failed relationships and they have much higher percentage of scandals? Well, one of the reasons is that when they have all this power and fame and money and everybody's telling them how great they are, that's self-destructive. Relationships fail because it's all about them now. They're out of control. So their pride, their ego ends up making a fool out of them, really. Instead of being so smart and so great and everything, they end up as being fools. Uh, a good friend of mine tells the, the true story of uh, running into an old college friend he hadn't seen in about 30 years. And he said, uh, how's it going? And this guy says, great. My business is good. My golf handicap's lower than ever. All my children got scholarships to Ivy League schools. How about you? And he says, well, we're kind of struggling. Our, our son's in uh, a rehab clinic, and, and we got all kinds of problems and issues. Life is tough. And this guy says, wait a minute. I didn't know we were telling the truth. <laughs> Let me back up. I thought this was one of those normal conversations where we all lied. <laughs> so Jesus, uh, today the Pharisee and the uh, tax collector, Jesus talks a lot, all the, just about all the negative stuff Jesus talked about was about hypocrites and the Pharisees in the Bible stories are the perfect example of hypocrisy. And so Jesus in his very first sermon talked about this, about the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. And instructing his disciples in Matthew 6, 4, uh, 1 through 5, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your own righteousness before men in order to get the approval of men. This is what hypocrites do. They're trying to impress people and gain the approval of them. They want the spotlight. They want the acclamation. They want people to uh, pat them on the back and everybody to like them, be popular. And so Jesus said, Beware of doing that. And don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the Pharisees. When you give, don't blow a trumpet so men can see you giving. This is what the proud hypocrites do, to be honored by men. That's their purpose. You, on the other hand, give your alms in secret so God will reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the proud hypocrites who stand in the synagogues in order to be seen by men. They get up in the middle and make sure everybody's looking at them. And then what do they do? They give some elaborate a pr a prayer so that people will go, wow, that guy's really religious. Man, that was a great prayer. Jesus says, no, you pray privately to God in secret and he will actually hear you. And if you fast, you've heard a lot about fasting. Most of us have never done it, but 
<laughs> you know, who've ever fasted. They used to fast all the time. And in the parable, the the uh, religious leader in the parable actually boasts about his fasting. But Jesus said, if you fast, do not do what the hypocrites do and put on a gloomy face, neglecting their appearance in order to be admired by men. And I read somewhere that the, the uh, even though the, the law didn't even say you had to fast, uh, the Pharisees would do it so that people would think they were really religious. Oh, he's giving up all you know food and everything. And they would fast supposedly twice a week. And they would actually put on makeup, you know, to make themselves look pale and haggard, like, oh, I haven't eaten in so long. I'm denying myself. And they would wear their worst clothes, and they'd mess up their hair. And they'd put on a performance in front of all the people. So everybody would say, wow, that guy's really sacrificing a lot. He's really religious, you know. So Jesus said, no, you don't do that at all to be admired by men. If you're going to do it, it's to enhance your relationship with God. That's the only purpose in any religious activity. Any of the, the rituals that you may have grown up doing, uh, they're, they're all fine if they enhance your relationship with God. But if it's all about being religious, if it's all about being seen and admired by other people, then God has a major problem with it, Jesus says. Pride loves to talk about I and me and mine. And you probably all had typical conversations. And, and the Pharisee in the deal in the parable today talks that way, a lot of I and me and mine. And you probably had conversations with people where they really like to talk about themselves. And the, finally, the guy might say, well, enough about me talking about myself. What do you think about me? <laughs> you know, that's about as good as they can do. And listen, who, who started this whole deal, <laughs> this pride thing? Where did this come from? Were we born this way? No, we were born... Uh, as God's humble servants in originally, and we became proud. And who originated? Isaiah 14 has the great story of the fall of Lucifer, you know, better known as Satan. And Lucifer has this conversation with God in Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 14. God says, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. And, of course, that word Lucifer, his name comes from a Hebrew, it means bright, shining star. So he was beautiful, a beautiful creation of God in the beginning. But here's what happened. God says, you have been cut down to earth. You've been thrown out of heaven because you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heights of heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the most high God. That was Lucifer's goal, and that's where he went. That was his big problem. And God's response was, Nevertheless, you will be thrown down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. <laughs> so because he raised or sought to raise himself up, God threw him down. Just the opposite of what he was after. So he started it all. And then, of course, we were corrupted by him. And now you basically have this great, all the world's a stage, and we're actors in this play. And the big question is, who's got the right to rule? Is it going to be all about me? 
or is it all about God? Does God have a right to rule? Does he have the right to expect our worship and devotion? And, of course, the Bible is clear. The answer is yes. Yes, he does. And that's what this is all about, is that battle about who's got the right to rule. Who rules your life? Is it me? I go my way, do my thing. You do what I tell you. You know, I make my decision. You know, that's the typical human response. And so another, another problem with pride is we're always, always trying to impress each other, always trying to impress other people. We're trying to have that acclamation of people and get the spotlight on me, right? And so the question is talking about impression. What impresses God? What imp- if we're trying to impress men, but what if what is, impresses God? We need to know that. I think in religion, we too often are trying to, to, to impress people rather than God. Um, I remember I was on a, a finance committee of some organization, and the chairman of it, you know, was getting concerned about not raising the budget. And he kept saying, not on my watch. And I kept thinking, well, what about the organization? You know, what about the church? (laughs) Not on my watch. In other words, I'm not going to have the legacy of not raising the budget or, you know, the thing going broke or whatever. That's all he really cared about. See, I don't think God's impressed with that. So what, what impresses God? In the, in the parable today, you'll see it, what impresses God. When you don't try to impress God, that impresses God. Isn't that wild? The, the tax collector in the story is not trying to impress anybody or God, and that impresses God. The publican, the, tax, the other guy, the, uh, the Pharisee, on the other hand, is trying to impress everybody, and... He is judged by God. So in the parable, uh, the Pharisee thought he was impressing God with his lofty prayer, with his tithing and his fasting and all that. But God was only impressed with the humility and the contrition of the tax collector. So this story, uh, if you you have chapter 18 uh, in your Bible with you, turn to chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. The parable is a story about two men. Two men in the same place in order to do the same thing, pray. But their attitude and intentions produced totally different results. They both go to the same place, do the same thing, but because of their attitude and intentions, it produces two opposing results. One man tried to talk himself into God's kingdom, but he didn't make it. The other man tried to talk himself out of God's kingdom, and he did make it. And we are students trying to find out what impresses God and what doesn't. And I think you'll see it in today's parable. All right? So uh, what's going on? Uh, You have two prayers offered, one in a humble spirit, one in a proud spirit, and what's God's response going to be? And what is the ground of our approach to God anyway? When we come to God in prayer, what should be the grounds of our approach? On what basis? Uh, A lot of, I've I've actually heard prayers of, well, Lord, I've always been a good person. I've always done what I was supposed to do. So therefore, Lord, please answer my prayer to, you know, heal me or, or give me this or whatever. Is that it? 
that's based on me, what I do. That's the, the Pharisee in the parable. Or is it that prayer of contrition and humility given by the tax collector? Okay, uh, So they come to the temple, which is interesting, just a few facts to set up the context. The temple there in uh, Jerusalem, uh, up on the Temple Mount, when, when the Bible talks about being at the temple, it's not just talking about in some little building or, or any singular building. Uh, the Temple Mount is this whole complex of building on top of Mount Moriah uh, that's, uh, I think it's four football fields long and a couple football fields wide. It's a huge area. And they had all kind of meeting areas and colonnades and uh, several buildings there, offices, retail, the whole deal. So when the Bible talks about being up at the temple, they're talking about the whole Temple Mount area. At the actual building, that the temple building, there was a courtyard in front of it. And all the Jews uh, uh, could hang out in that courtyard. And then there was an outer courtyard behind that uh, for women, and then another courtyard outside that for Gentiles. Kind of tells you the pecking, pecking order of ancient Israel. Uh, and so these guys in the parable are in that inner courtyard. The tax collector is not even supposed to be there because if you're a sinner, a known sinner, you're, you're not supposed to be able to come in to that, that inner sanctum, so to speak. So they come to, they come, both come to that same place, that court, courtyard of the Jews, and the Pharisee in his pride gets right in the middle of, it, middle of it. And every day they had two public prayers that people came up to the temple to attend. One at nine in the morning and one at three in the afternoon. And they would come up, all the Pharisees would come up in all their grandeur. And, and this one got in the middle of all the people and prayed out loud this prayer that you, you see in the parable. Uh, the other guy, on the other hand, he's not even supposed to be there. So he's off to the, on the sidelines, kind of hanging out, doesn't want anybody to see him. Because in his humility, he knows that he's a sinner. And he doesn't even feel comfortable being there. Pharisees, you know, if you wonder, well, who are these Pharisee guys? You know, where'd that name come from? Uh, who are they? Are they still there in Israel today? The answer is no. But uh, after the Maccabean revolt in 169 B.C., and Israel was able to govern itself for about 100 years, uh, they were a kind of the people divided up into political religious groups. There was no separation of church and state. So instead of having like a Republican and a Democratic Party, you had the Pharisee Party and the Sadducee Party and the Essenes Party. Uh, they were all religious slash political. They, they came together in their society and in their government. So the Pharisees were a political religious group that had most of the support of the people. The Sadducees were the noblemen, uh, the, the richer uh, gentry, uh, and the uh, Pharisees were more uh, accepted and, and taught. They taught the people the Word of God. Uh, their name, the word uh, Pharisee, comes from a Hebrew word for separation. And they named that. They were proud of that name. They were basically saying, we're separate from everybody else. We're better than everybody else. So it's like a elitist, an elitist type name. They were all very well educated. They were considered experts in Mosaic Law. Uh, and they would go way beyond the actual Mosaic Law and add to it in many, many traditions. The great historian Josephus 
wrote that there was only about 6,000 in all of Israel. So out of millions of people, there were only about 6,000. So they were an elite group with special education and special knowledge, and they had the respect of the people. Uh, and they prided themselves in their knowledge and their understanding and their adherence to the law. On the other hand, the tax collector, who's this guy, and why did everybody hate tax collectors? Well, that's not hard to figure. You know, it's April 15th is coming up. We all hate paying taxes. But this was even worse because the tax collectors in the Roman Empire, uh, they auctioned off this office because it, the, the potential for making money was so huge. In the Roman uh, system, they would sell these uh, tax collecting areas, and anything you could collect over what Rome wanted, you could keep. You can imagine the corruption in a system like that. They, were, they became extortionists, right? Always threatening the people. And, and they took bribes uh, to overlook things or to, or to do things. And, uh, and so it was just a really a corrupt system, and everybody hated them. First of all, they were dealing with Romans, so they were branded as traitors. They were traitors uh, to begin with to, to Israel. And they were extortionists, and they took bribes, and they were just known as thieves. So this tax collector, the expectation in this story, by anyone listening to Jesus, they understand the story, who these guys are and what they do. Remember what a parable is. It's a uh, fictitious story that they would understand, that they see every day. So they would understand the story, but it would, Jesus told it to illustrate a spiritual truth that they did not understand, okay? And so what, are, what are their expectations is that the Pharisee's the good guy and the tax collector's a bad guy. So they expect Jesus to uh, say that the Pharisee's the righteous one and this guy's condemned, the tax collector's condemned. But it's going to be just the opposite. He's going to shock them. And you've probably seen in the last nine weeks uh, the Jesus told a lot of these parables for the shock value. You know, everybody leave everybody gasping. What? And that's what he was trying to do. So therefore, for Jesus uh, to contrast in this parable these two men was to go against all perceptions and what they expected. Uh, the, a representative of the most religious group is the bad guy. And a representative of the most irreligious group is the good guy in this parable. Shocking. And so makes us ask the question, what is the way to be justified before God? This way or that way? That's the question in the parable. All right? Uh, and so this... Uh, perception and expectation, not only of Israel, but us as well. We all have this. Leads us, Jesus starts out in verse 9, and he's telling this, this story to Pharisees. And it says, Jesus told the parable to certain ones, the Pharisees, who trusted in themselves. So in, in whom was their trust to be saved? Not God, not Jesus. Their trust was in themselves all of their good works and keeping the law and who they were, their power and position. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
And what is the corollary to that? When you build yourself up and make yourself an elitist, it's just natural to do what? To view others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, whoa, that's the first red flag that should go up. Praying to himself? I thought you prayed to God. Well, of course you do. So what does it mean, uh, praying to himself? He's basically, Jesus is saying a lot of prayers, this guy's prayers are actually rationalizing his own life. Uh, he, what, he's like justifying himself. Let me tell you who I am and what I've done. That's praying to yourself, see? So, and and that's, that's the form of his prayer. It's also a form of self-deception, right? And so you could say this is a portrait of a religious performer, someone who's out there making a performance for the acclamation of other people. You know, Joseph Kennedy, I, I read in some book, uh, he was bringing his sons up to be politicians. And he said, when it comes to politics, what you are is not important. What you appear to be is all important, right? And that's really true. But that's politics. In God's economy, it's just the opposite. He looks into the heart, and he knows exactly who you are and what you are. And so the Pharisee was praying to himself, and what did he say? God, I thank thee that I'm not like these other people, these sinners, they're swindlers, they're unjust, they're adulterers, and of course this horrible tax collector. The guy's over there thinking he was hiding, and he's noticed him, and he points him out. And he's praying this out loud, you know, for all the people there in the courtyard to hear. And he lists his accomplishments. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. I'm sure if the story was longer, he would go on to talk about all of his good deeds and all of his law-keeping, etc., etc. But Jesus is telling a short story. But you get the point of where this guy's, where he thought justification was, self-justification, based on what I want and who I think I am and what I think it ought to be, see? So he has, obviously, a feeling of religious superiority, it's all about who he is and what he does. Uh, and when you think, you know, he came there and gave this elaborate prayer with everybody watching. He said he fasts twice a week. Well, you don't even need to do that. There's no command in the Mosaic Law to do that. The only fast that's commanded in the Mosaic Law is the uh, Day of Atonement. One day a year, and these guys are doing it twice a week. And they, they weren't required to pay tithes on everything, but he says, but I do. I give extra money, and he's proud of it. So in their traditions, they actually exceeded what the law required, and they expected God to be impressed by that. But he's not. Uh, we saw in Jesus' commentary in Matthew 6 when I started out what Jesus said about it. Don't be like these guys who, who are just out there really trying to uh, impress other people and get the acclamation of other people. Uh, God is more interested in the internal acts of our heart 
than the external acts that only men see. So here's this guy, this Pharisee, he has no sense of sin and no sense of, a, of no feeling of need for, for forgiveness, no concept of falling short of the glory of God. He's really blind to his true spiritual condition. But look at verse 13. On the other hand, here's the contrast. The tax gatherer, he is standing some distance away. So he's kind of off on the sidelines. And he was unwilling to even lift up his eyes. He, his head was down. So his posturing is just the opposite. He's standing on the sidelines. He, he's in a humble mode, right? Uh, he felt unworthy even to be there. He's beating his breast. And that's a, that was a sign of contrition. I'm, oh, I'm so bad. I'm so awful. I've sinned so greatly. He was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So admitting his sin, coming before God and admitting it. And the amazing thing is when he says, God, be merciful, the sinner, you know what? That's an accurate assessment. He is. He was. It's an accurate assessment. But the Pharisee before gave an inaccurate assessment of who he was. See, and of course only God can see it. People can't, can only see what they can see and hear, but God knows the heart. And so it's not only an accurate assessment, it's also a healthy assessment to come before God confessing your sin. And, and what's the difference between the two? How can they be so, so far apart? And here's why. The Pharisee compares himself to other people. Did you notice that? I'm glad I'm not like these other people. The Pharisee compares himself to other people, but the sinner, the, the tax collector, compares himself to God, to God's holiness. And, of course, that's the standard that the Bible uses. It's not how you measure up to other people. If it is, y'all are doing pretty good. But if it's the standard is the glory and the holiness and the righteousness of God, how are you doing? Terrible. You fall way short. And that's the truth. God himself is the standard of judgment. God doesn't grade on the curve, right? You don't have some terrible murder sinner in your midst that makes the curve, you know, way down so you're way up here like you did in high school. That's how a lot of you got through high school. I know Jeff did. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's the outcome? The outcome of the two prayers is really a reversal of what the first century religious leaders would expect. The outcome, verse 14, I tell you, and this is Jesus saying this, I tell you this man went down to his house, the sinner, the tax gatherer, left and went to his house justified rather than the other. So the tax collector is justified in God's eyes, and the Pharisee is condemned in God's eyes. And here's why. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. That's God's economy. That's what impresses God, that humility, 
to come before him and give an accurate assessment of who you really are. That impresses God. And so, again, let me give a, a disclaimer. Religion and morality are wonderful. We ought to all practice it. That's good things. But we got to remember we're, we remain unworthy until our sins are atoned for. Do all the religious stuff, all the rituals, go, uh, give, do everything. But look, your sins still have to be atoned for. And how are you going to do that? You can't. Only Jesus can do that. You've got to have Christ, a relationship with Christ in your life, for your sins to be atoned for. And when you do, then as a result, you do good works. And you live for Him. And you obey Him. That's quite a bit of difference from what the Pharisee was trying to do. He's trying to justify himself instead of God justifying him. So let me conclude with this, uh, this, uh, this story. We are all like the guy charged with stealing. All of us are like the guy charged with stealing. And the judge came to him and said, Sir, would you want me to try your case? Or do you want to choose a jury of your peers? And the guy says, Well, I don't even know what that means. What are peers? Well, they are people just like you. So the guy says, well, forget that. I don't want to be tried by a bunch of thieves. <laughs> and in the same way, we don't judge each other for eternal life, for righteousness. God does that, so we should be out to impress Him and not each other. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these wonderful stories that Jesus told and and uh, the shock value that they have. And Jesus, his aim is to set us straight, to humble us so that we'll come to you, Lord, in all humility and contrition, just like the tax collector. We will have an accurate assessment of who we really are, sinners in need of a Savior. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.